Hi, everyone. Welcome to Santa Clara Ventures Podcast. I am your host, Ishan Call. Our guest today is a BYU alumni and currently an investor at eVentures. It's my pleasure to introduce Tanner Merrill. Thank you for taking the time to come on our show today. Sure. Glad to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Absolutely. Um, you know, I always like to start off with a little bit about you. So um, what was the path that you took to reach the VC industry? Yeah, so I first um, found that I had an interest in um, private equity um, probably halfway through my, my time at BYU, um, probably about 20, early 2018. And so started the, the venture out a little bit and, um, you know, select um, internships that were offered uh, through BYU to try and just gain some exposure to the space. Because I'm sure, as you know, uh, you know, especially uh, as you get toward the early stages of private equity, information about day to day, about um, just sort of career opportunities becomes quite obscure. Um, so yeah, I went out and just garnered uh, you know, some experience through internships uh, via uh, you know, BYU um, and just found you know, that, that, that the earlier stage uh, side of, of private equity was, uh, was interesting to me and I just continued to find internships. I interned in several places here uh, in Utah. And um, uh, as I, I spent more time doing it. I think it just sort of clicked with me and, and um, continue to, uh, yeah, continue to find opportunities until I end up here. Absolutely. And I love that. Yeah. It's a, it's weird because there really isn't that much availability, especially with internships and stuff. Like people don't really um, advertise it or anything. You know, you kind of have to go out and find it on your own. Totally. Mm-hmm. Um, Super obscure, which is kind of weird, but yeah, it's weird. They try to keep it hidden, you know, <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. Uh, I saw that you uh, actually interned or worked with the University Growth Fund. And I'd love Mm -hmm. to hear more about that experience and like how that positioned you for your current role at eVentures. Yeah. So, you know, University Growth Fund um, within the state of Utah and um, actually uh, sort of Southern California, because there is an office there, it's pretty well known. But throughout the rest of the country, it isn't. It's still quite a small firm and only manages something like 32 or $34 million. Um, so it's not extremely well known, but I, I have to say, um, given my, my experience um, and sort of what I understand about internships out there generally, it's gotta be one of the best internship opportunities available to undergrads globally. Um, and for me, it offered something that I think differentiates uh, University Growth Fund from, from any other uh, internship out there, or at least most, is that I actually worked on transactions. I was actually able to, in the venture and growth space, um, perform due diligence on and be a part of the team that, that actually invested capital into uh, in not just you know, actual venture rounds, but, but what I would consider high quality, top tier, you know, venture rounds. Um, my first deal was uh, led by TCV. And so I was able to work with that team, was able to work a lot with you know, scale venture partners um, coming together on other deals. And so, you know, that experience um, helped me to really understand how a venture deal usually works um, through the, you know, sort of analysis uh, and due diligence process processes all the way through to uh, the execution part where we're actually 
you know, looking at term sheets and stuff. And I, I just don't think that that's um, something you get at most places. Yeah, I absolutely completely agree with you there. It's really hard to get that kind of experience anywhere. Like even if you're doing an internship, it's hard to get that entire experience. Yeah, no, you could be you could be an intern at, you know, at a top tier fund and you'll be working on, you know, maybe sourcing and, and sort of mm -hmm. data analysis, which has its yep. has its own value for sure. Um, but I, I think, uh, you know, for me, the actual transaction experience, working on deals, seeing you know how things go um, from that standpoint was was what ended up differentiating me as a candidate into the space later on. Most definitely. I can definitely see that. Um, what do you believe are some other like good ways that people like in college can prepare for like a VC investor role? I mean, outside of venture internships? Yeah. Yeah. I think working, uh, you know, maybe interning with startups um, is another great way to do it. I don't think necessarily you have to be a, a great um, operator um, to, to be a good investor. But I do think that having exposure to this sort of startup experience in early stage companies, certainly before a Series B, um, it forces you to wear a lot of hats, right? That's sort of the nature of those things. Those teams are, are still lean, but they have to do a lot of work. It's very strategy focused. You're making decisions um, about business models. You're making decisions about um, market entry. Uh, and these are things that help you to uh, understand or at least to to perceive um, the elements of uh, growing a business, which you know will either help you to see really what works or what doesn't work, both of which I think work um, in uh, you know providing you the knowledge set that will be ultimately advantageous for you when you go out to recruit for VC. Absolutely, agree with that completely. I think going this, either the startup route or the you know, just VC internship route and getting experience through that. Both of those are very, very good options. Mm -hmm. um, Definitely. So, yeah. Do you, um, do you see like that operating experience as being something that's um, essential to like, you know, no, no. Okay. No, no. Yeah. I mean, we have on our team, for example, and I can speak to several teams that I'm close with. Um, certainly. Um, you see a lot of venture capitalists with operating experience that come from startups and they have a very important perspective. And then you see lifetime investors who started their careers as investors and they are very high quality, um, you know, investors that are still very uh, intelligent uh, on um, corporate developments, you know, corporate strategy, business strategy, um, but business models, you know, it's it certainly, is not a is, is not essential. At Absolutely. least it better not be because I don't have any of that experience. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, so, do you think your internship prepared you uh, well for this investor role that you're doing now? So yeah, I had several. Um, so I first uh, interned with a very small local family office, which was sort of a venture builder dash incubator. Um, and then I went on to uh, intern with uh, a local fund, um, which you might call a micro fund. At the time, I think that the assets under management for that fund was less than 150 million, maybe even, maybe even you know, considerably less than that. But it was at the time it was called Peak Ventures and later rebranded as Album BC. This fund was still kind of up and coming at the time. 
I think they were investing out of their second venture fund. Uh, and again, assets under management were still very small, but an extremely high quality team, an extremely high quality fund. And, and even just a few years later, um, they've really put themselves on the map. Um, their investments include uh, you know, Podium, uh, Divi, um, and so many other uh, you know, companies that have, have just been able to raise it at incredibly high valuations in, in the short time following their initial investments. And that experience um, you know, certainly prepared me well in, in uh, giving me probably my first exposure to what real world VC looks like. The family office didn't really do that. Um, but I, I began to see, okay, what, what does it look like when a company comes into a VC? What information do they bring along with them? What questions do the VCs usually ask? What's important to know? What do we have to believe as investors to, to be confident to make this bet? Um, yeah, and so that was definitely important. That led me to a couple other internships that, again, ultimately ended up a UGF, University Growth Fund, um, which uh, certainly was essential. All, all that, that, that sort of, those experiences were absolutely crucial for, not only for me being prepared to be an investor, but also to, to recruit successfully. Absolutely. I think they're very important, not only for the experience, but just to like understand that, or not even understand, but like gain interest in the role itself. You know, like I think um, a big part of getting interest in the role is just doing it, you know, going through the process itself. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's not for everyone. Um, mm -hmm. And you go online and you Google it and you, you're going to find a whole bunch of, uh, not a whole bunch actually, uh, probably a limited number of videos and websites that will tell you what VC is and what day-to-day -day looks like. Um, and and, and uh, it's, it's actually a lot of that information contradicts um, uh, other information. And so you just end up sort of confused. It's important to go get, go get experience when you can, especially uh, during undergrad. Yep, absolutely, completely agree with you there. Um, it, how did you go about landing these internships? Did you like reach out to them via cold calls, cold emails? So if you're at a, a school that um, is established and sort of has a good business school, usually they'll, they will have at least one or two venture firms that are connected from them, that, that pull interns from that school um, or even provide on-campus internships directly to students, kind of regardless of, of, their, of their background, just to give them that exposure. BYU is like this. BYU is very, uh, very exceptional at providing internship opportunities to students. Um, if you're a student that has even just a slight interest in venture capital at BYU, for example, um, you can go and get what's called an on-campus internship at one of probably three or four funds that just gives you, one, some very high-level experience. It's not granular by any means, but it will get you into the space. It will get a VC fund on your resume, which is material. Uh, for me, I didn't necessarily do that. I had a friend that worked at this family office that I mentioned earlier, and I was able to later on leverage that experience uh, and that resume. And by leverage, I mean, I really squeezed everything out of it on my resume. I mean, I, I was like, you know, you know how it goes. Um, and I was able to leverage that initial experience and interview well to gain the, to get the internship at, at Album VC or Peak Ventures, right? And then when I had those two on my resume, I was able to go to the next fund and say, hey, look, I've got two experiences. 
I know a little bit more than I did prior to that one. Look, give me a shot. And, and I was able to get a shot there. And then, you know, ultimately when I went out to recruit, I had like three or four of those on my resume. And so it was, you know, it started off small. And I think students generally should probably follow that same pattern. They should go to their schools, you know, find out if they're, if those connections are there. Um, and if not, uh, find a local small fund, someone who's likely to you know, hire you and, and don't give them any reasons not to hire you as an intern. Just be like, hey, I just want to help. Don't pay me. Uh, I didn't get paid at all my entire undergrad for two and a half years of, of internships, um, working 20 to 30 hours a week. Uh, I didn't get paid at all. And that's just kind of the price that I figured I had to pay to get into the space. Um, and it worked. Absolutely, completely agree with you there. I love the fact that you're talking about the positioning of your first internship, man. That's amazing. Yeah, I've definitely you felt do it. that before. <laughs> and I didn't lie. You know, you don't lie, but you, you know, you exactly. You, you just do some. You just do some <laughs> kind of lame stuff sometimes mm -hmm. um, as an intern, and so you just gotta position that uh, a little bit better exactly. with without sort of without sort of you know fabricating embellishing too much. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I'd like to trans transition a little bit more towards uh, eVentures. Um, so like what attracted you to them and like made you decide to join their team? So I was recruiting um, late 2019 for uh, several VC funds. I was applying to, um, I was trying to get into global, global funds. I wanted to, to get into a fund that had a large um, pool of capital and had a good reputation and, and, and portfolio. But at the same time, I wanted to, I wanted to be a part of a small team. Uh, culture matters a lot to me. That's such a buzzword. But um, I wanted to, I wanted to be able to um, have a little bit of autonomy, even as a you know very you know, entry level individual and in, investor. Uh, and I wanted to, you know, be able to get to know uh, my team and have them. Uh, get to know me, uh, and and I didn't entirely know what that even meant at the time. Um, I still am figuring it out, but I think it sounded really good. And the idea of being on a small team is attractive to me, just based on sort of my preferences. And so wherever I would apply and whatever you know, wherever I would speak to, that was important to me. And I, and and um, also wanted to, you know, one indicator for me that mattered is that you know how long have how long are the people sticking around. How long are you know how long have the partners in principles been at the fund? Have they been in there one, two years, or is it seven, eight, nine years, ten years? Um, and so certainly when I was speaking with eVentures, it was a large fund, global, but but small, uh, in the sense that our San Francisco office, which is our only office here in the US, um, only has eight investors there. Um, nine including me right now it's pretty lean um and uh, that ultimately uh, mattered a lot to me and and of course uh, other other factors kind of you know eventually came into it um but th those things um and, th and that has proved to be uh one of my favorite things about adventures so far because uh, it, it i made the right choice absolutely that's amazing yeah, you always got to look at the culture fit and, you know, the autonomy is definitely a big thing for me as well. You know, you want to be able to do, um, you know, the stuff on your own. You want to be able to have enough deals of your own. So um, definitely yeah. agree with you there. 
Um, so I see that eVentures kind of focuses in different locations, right? So they have, you know, their SF office, they have their Shanghai office, but why did they decide locations such as like Tokyo, Sao Paulo, and Berlin? So the, uh, the, the origin of uh, eVentures actually starts in Germany. Uh, the founding partners at the firm are, are German. Um, they were originally involved with Bertelsmann, which is a media company, uh, European media company, which evolved uh, and was acquired by AOL and eventually became AOL Europe. So you can think about that as sort of the origin of the fund. And, you know, they, they shifted in 98 or 99 to come to uh, San Francisco, because obviously in venture, that's, that's really uh, where you know, the internet companies were, uh, uh, you know, kicking off. And obviously Silicon Valley became what it is today. But they maintained the Berlin office. And, um, you know, there, there's a various emerging um, economies throughout the world where exciting companies are being launched. Certainly Asia is one of those. Um, and South America, we also recognized as being, as being one of those. And so we, we wanted to maintain a presence uh, in, in those ecosystems. Um, and so, uh, you know, to date, we, uh, we do have, do have uh, our, our, our office there and they're active. They, we, we have partners and a team uh, in each of those cities that actively make their own investments, um, but under the eVentures umbrella. Absolutely. That's amazing. I actually didn't know about the, um, that, that they started in Berlin at all. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, how large is your entire team, like across all of your branches? I don't even know, to be honest. It's probably 50, 55 people, something like that. Yeah. Okay. Sounds good. Yeah. Um, eVentures, they also invest across all stages, right? So what, what do you think are like the pros and cons of investing across like all stages versus you know, sticking to like seed or, um, you know, a different stage? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, there's probably a number of ways to answer that, but from my, from what I understand, you know, you talk to a lot of companies and, um, you, uh, you try your best to catch companies as early as possible. Um, but occasionally you, you miss some, uh, and occasionally some just sneak past you and raise a series a without you ever knowing about them. You can, we, we do as much as we can and we employ, you know, as much technology as we absolutely can to try and find the best companies as early as possible and, and put capital into them. Um, but of course, again, um, some of those we miss for one reason or another, and they end up uh, at the Series B stage uh, or at Series C stage. And it's important for us that um, we still, you know, maintain the capability of, of investing in, in the best companies, regardless of, of where they're at, sector-wise, uh, stage-wise, or, or uh, as we spoke about earlier, uh, geography-wise. Absolutely. I agree with you there. Yep. Um, so what are like some changes that maybe eVentures has made due to, um, due to COVID, like maybe in their investment strategy or their focus? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, interestingly, uh, our investment tempo, if, you, if we can call that, has accelerated. We've actually been making more investments um, since COVID kicked off uh, rather than less. Um, and the reason for that, to answer your question, is that we were following various trends uh, in, you know, in, in, take for example, um, companies moving their, their workforce remote, right? So, you know, the, the trend of sort of workforce management solutions um, 
the uh, e-commerce, uh, right? People, sh people shifting their, their, um, their purchase behavior uh, in such a way that it, it moves online. And so all the, you know, these and many more trends were, were, uh, were, were things we were certainly following and aware of. And COVID accelerated these. And so for us, while we were keeping an eye on all of these and actively looking for investments that, that we felt like made sense in this space, we suddenly realized as a result of COVID that many of these trends were going to accelerate. Digitization um, of, uh, of businesses generally, um, you know, e-commerce again, uh, and, and many more. Uh, it went from went from let's say the milestones that we thought we were going to happen in five years or six years were going to happen this year, and so for us we were like okay now we have to really quickly find who's going to be a winner, um, who are, who are the you know three years from now there's going to be several large multi billion dollar companies that right now you have no idea exist, just like happened with Uber, um, Zillow, uh, you know Amazon uh, obviously a lot uh, much further back. A few years before these companies became massive household names, no one knew they existed, and we're confident that's going to be the case um, as a result of COVID. With with you know in these particular spaces, and we uh, are certainly not planning on missing out on any of those. And so for us, it's been um, it's been all about quickly you know talking to as many companies in these spaces as possible uh, and investing in the ones that we feel like are going to be winners, and we're doing that quite quickly. Uh, we've made quite a few investments in the past two months alone. Absolutely. Yeah, no, the, the changes have definitely had, you know, the rate of change has definitely increased a lot. You know, you, like you were saying, you expected like these trends to, you know, occur over like five to six years and just occurred over one year because of this. So um, yeah, it's yeah. definitely interesting to see, you know, even, even telemedicine was one that like was a trend, really but you know, yeah, it just increased um, so, so quickly. But, um, but yeah, um, so about your deal sourcing, how do you guys go about deal sourcing? That's a good question. Cause every firm does it. Well, I shouldn't say every firm does it differently, but, um, there's no industry wide approach. Most I'd say, I'd say that the majority of firms, um, have a, a unique spin on just sort of the typical process, which I think involves uh, sort of scouring the internet um, and, you know, the various websites of accelerators, angel investors, TechCrunch, Product Hunt, Hacker News, these sites that follow startups and produce content on them. Crunchbase is another one, obviously. Um, and, uh, you know, these venture funds are obviously trying to find the companies that are out there raising seed money, raising you know angel money, um, that are showing up on G2 and Capterra and and um, Product Hunt and Hacker News, and reaching out to the founders and trying to figure out, you know, who's uh, who's got the best uh, mousetrap. Um, but for us at Eventures, we have a very very unique um, and differentiated way of sourcing. Um, it's it's entirely proprietary. Um, but essentially what we've done is we've built internal technology, which allows us to, um, in, allows us to gather and observe growth indicators for private companies, um, across the entire internet. Um, so we can, we can look at any company globally that has a website and observe, um, certain indicators i don't know how much i can share about sort of where we gather the data or exactly what it is 
um, but we are able to uh, see who's growing and who's not, basically, before we ever reach out. This is extremely proprietary, but it allows us to sort uh, the world's companies by who's growing the fastest and by sector and go in and say, okay, in the e-commerce space, in the dropshipping space, in the, uh, you know, CPG space, whatever, coffee space, who's growing the fastest? Um, and then we talk to all of those companies. And um, it's cold. It's usually, you know, us reaching out cold, um, but we have a pretty good response rate. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I, I've heard about those, uh, you know, proprietary in-house tools that Eventures has. And they're definitely um, very interesting. Obviously, you guys don't dive very deep into it, which makes sense. But, um, but yeah, do, do you think that is something that has helped you guys with all of your success or like has differentiated you guys from other people? It absolutely differentiates us. Um, we still source, uh, I wouldn't say the, not the majority, but a significant uh, a number of deals every year through other means. So we still source the traditional way. Um, I occasionally find companies when on LinkedIn, I, I find companies while just on the internet, I come across a business and I, and I think about it and it make, and, and, and everything sort of checks out in my mind and, and I reach out. Um, but the benefit to, to using these tools, even, even when using those more, what you might call more legacy or traditional sourcing, uh, processes is that you come, you can come across a company that looks very exciting, might even have a good team. Um, and, and, uh, let's say their website looks incredible, like just great website. Maybe you even see their deck and their deck look, looks great, but there's a lot of people that know how to build decks and websites really well. And, and, and they may not, they may not be growing whatsoever. Um, and so it's important for us to, even if we find those companies to then plug them into our tech and see, okay, you know, are they experiencing a bump in web traffic or are they just not? Is web traffic going up or down? Um, and, uh, you know, so for us, we rely on, the, on that tool quite a lot. Absolutely. I can definitely see that as a great advantage. Yep. Um, what are some of the metrics that you guys use to gauge a good startup? Yeah, so we've got some unique ones, unique to ventures, and um, some we've actually um, come up with ourselves, and then some of the more traditional ones. So it depends on depends on the type of company because of course we're industry agnostic, and so we might be speaking to uh, you know a consumer uh, product company like Sonos we, who we invested in. We might be speaking to a, a consumer marketplace like the Real Real, uh, or we might be speaking to an entirely uh, you know enterprise focused software as a service company, um, and we certainly have a a lot of those technical SaaS companies in our portfolio, and the. You know, the metrics that we look for can change slightly from industry to industry, but some of the ones that stay constant are um, re you know, obviously revenue growth um, and the margin profile of the business. Um, we also are concerned about retention, which of course changes quite a lot from SaaS to consumer. Um, and, um, you know, beyond retention, we want to understand marketing efficiency and payback periods. Some metrics that fall into that category uh, traditionally are like LTV to CAC, <clears throat> you know, uh, lifetime value of the customer divided by customer acquisition cost, um, payback period, which is sort of a simple metric, um, and uh, capital efficiency. But if you look at uh, how we do it different from most firms, we actually 
uh, invented something. I think, I think our a partner uh, and, and an analyst at our firm invented this in the past couple of years called the core ratio. And the reason why we invented the core ratio because it sort of standardizes LTV over CAC. Um, and this is an important part of the adventure story because LTV over CAC is quite subjective uh, because LTV is an ambiguous term. Um, you know, do you if, say, for example, and this is what most firms do, most firms will take the revenues that a customer, you know, contributes over their lifetime. Um, let's say they stay for 12 months and then they churn and they pay $100 a month. That's $1,200 for the year before they churn. And then $1,200 is their LTV, right? Well, that's slightly problematic because if you're looking at a consumer company, uh, maybe who distributes coffee versus like Black Rifle Coffee Company, for example, versus a technology company um, like test.ai, test.ai, which has extremely high margins. The margin profile of the coffee company might be 30 to 50%. And so let's say they both have customers that have $1,200 a year, you know, in, the, in that year, their, their gross profit from those customers are entirely different. So the, the, short, the, the short way around this is to say that you know, the core ratio takes the gross profit the cumulative gross profit over the lifetime of a customer and divides it by their acquisition cost. And for us, that's a very intelligent way to standardize um, how we view you know, marketing efficiency and payback. Um, and we do that with, there's several other metrics that we, that we use that are unique to us, but um, uh, those, are, those are a few. Absolutely, that's amazing. Yeah, I hadn't heard, that, heard of that metric at all, actually. That's the first time I've heard of that one. Yeah. Also, I mean, SAS, you know, look, another SaaS metric that we like is the magic number from our friends at Scale. Um, throw that out there. It's it's one that they invented that that we like quite a lot. That's that's mm -hmm. a lot more popular at the moment. Yeah, definitely. What qualities do you look for in a founder that makes you want to fund their company? In just the founder, not the company. Yeah, just the founder. Yeah. So Ceteris Paribus, focusing on the founder. Um, Charisma is important. I mean, and, and um, you know, the, that sounds unfair sometimes because um, not everybody's like that, but we've come across founders that have great companies with good unit economics and good revenue growth that we do not want to fund um, because of the founders. It's, it's, it's kind of interesting to say that, but yeah, charisma, positivity, a good strong vision and understanding of the market they're entering. Um, you know, not only do they have to understand the space and the landscape, the competitive landscape, the size of the market, the type of customers they're dealing with and the unique characteristics of, of those, um, but also their vision for the company, what they plan to do with it and why, um, you know, those things are, those things are, are certainly important, but like, like ability, like literally, you know, like ability, we have to jive with the founder and, and not just, us because it's not like you know we're certainly going to be likely that we'll be on their board and we'll work with them we want to like them but they have to go and raise capital in the future they have to go and raise a series b and maybe a series c and if we have if we have concerns about their ability to go and raise capital in the future because they're not likable it, it's concerning for us um and it, it actually can affect the valuation of the company so yeah. So yeah, I'd certainly say likability and charisma, um, a knowledge of their space and the vision for the company uh, and certainly grit, which founders usually have um, down pat. 
Yeah, no, definitely. I agree with you there. There has to be like an alignment between you and the founder and you just have to, you know, there has to be a certain match where, cause you know, you're going to be working with them for a while. And, yep. uh, you know, if the match just isn't there, then it's not going to be a fun time for either of us. No, it, it's very true. It has to work. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're, if you're a founder raising capital, um, and you're, and you're, you're an introvert, um, it's something you should work on. You should, you know, and, and people sometimes will bring in the CFO who's maybe more of an extrovert, but at the end of the day, you know, you got to figure that out um, and, and be a little bit, uh, a little bit more likable. But mo- I will say that most founders we talk to are very likable. And mm-hmm. like, that's not a problem we come up with, come, come across uh, frequently. Got you. That makes sense. Um, what are some new trends that are emerging that you're keeping your eye on? Oh, yeah. So trends, uh, you know, we, we see... Uh, some interesting trends taking place in the accessibility and, and the compliance space, which sounds incredibly boring, but the reality of it is that regulations surrounding accessibility has been around for a long time in the physical space. Wheelchair ramps, automatically opening doors, etc. But it is extending now to the internet. And so accessibility, literally, what is it, the ADA, um, now has uh, jurisdiction on the internet, on the websites. So websites literally have to be compliant um, with the ADA. Uh, And so anyway, I won't go too much further into that particular trend, but that's something we're following is that sort of accessibility solutions. Um, We, we, uh, we certainly are, are following a number of others sort of mental, mental health. uh, We feel like is, um, getting a lot more focus and there's a lot of solutions coming out, especially as telemedicine, the adoption of telemedicine services is going up. Um, this increases the accessibility of um, mental health services, uh, which affect a great deal more people than uh, most people realize. Um, and so that, that's, that's also a trend we're certainly spending a lot of time looking at. And of course, there's a lot of obvious ones that probably aren't worth me mentioning, such as like just the adoption of uh, online shopping um, and uh, you know, people, people going online for their, for everything. Uh, you know, now, now groceries, it's, it's now the norm to go online for your groceries. It's now the norm to go online um, for your coffee. Uh, it's now the norm to go online for uh, you know, everything. And while it, while the adoption was taking place for the last you know, 20 years, um, it, the, the penetration has gone up to, you know, probably twice over uh just in the last year so we're, we're, we're tracking that and tracking sort of what what sort of tailwinds and and you know other other trends that that might be uh impacting absolutely no i, I hadn't heard about the um accessibility trend at all actually that's um it's really interesting i'll have to check that out yeah um, do it yeah definitely um we're just gonna move into like more of the personal questions now um right. so what's your favorite book and why it's my favorite book. Yeah, I, you know, I think I I do read a lot, and um, I could I could go on and sort of about some of the books that um that I like. Let me let me just pull the one I've got right here up. So this is a book that I feel like will will be relevant, right? Because there's just, there's books that I like that maybe just aren't at all relevant to this conversation in, in your podcast. But this book is called Obsessed um, by Emily Hayward. Now Emily founded 
uh, she's a co-founder of Red Antler, which is sort of the a, a world-class leading, uh, you know, brand management, brand strategy company. Um, I don't know if you'll be able to see this because of my virtual background. Nope, not really. But um, Obsessed is the book. And the reason why is because it talks about building brands. Again, she's a world authority on, on that subject. Um, but more, uh, more and more in, as time goes on and more companies you know, get started and, and grow and enter the space, especially in the consumer side of things, brand is what will differentiate them in the long run. And you, and you can see this as an example with uh, you know, GoPro, Red Bull, OGO, a lot of companies in the consumer space don't have much differentiation anymore. GoPro did in the early days, right? They were the first to launch. So they, it was like nothing, you couldn't get any, for the, for the Hero 1 and 2, you couldn't get anything else like it. By the Hero 3, and certainly now with the freaking, what is it, 8, there's so many other options out there. But GoPro still is able to garner a ton, uh, you know, uh, much larger margins um, than their competitors. Uh, Red Bull. It's not particularly an interesting drink, but everyone loves the brand. And it's not a drink company. It's literally, it's selling a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle company. And that's, that's an element of brand. Uh, and so I think um, understanding your, as a founder, understanding your brand and, and having, having the brand in your mind from the very beginning, the origin of the company is essential. Um, not only to have that in mind, but to do it right. And uh, so this book has taught me a lot about um, how to think about branding um, and how to, how to establish a brand and, and how your decisions as a business owner, as a founder, and really in life in general, um, impact your brand both as a, as a firm and as a person. Uh, and the level of, you know, the degree to which that is important um, on the individual and company level uh, has, you know, I think was, was much more than I, than I kind of thought previously to reading this book. So I highly recommend it. Definitely. I love that. I'm, I'm definitely going to have to check out that book. I've, you know, recently started reading a lot more books, so that's definitely going to be the next book that I read. Yeah, I recommend it for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, where do you go to find new market information and just stay updated on new trends? That's a good question. There are a whole bunch of sources. Um, we are investors, we're early investors into, um, Axios, which, uh, you know, I, I, I highly recommend that just to stay up to date, uh, on trends and events taking place that people follow Dan Primack at Axios and subscribe to his, his newsletters. Um, but you know, you can, uh, find that information everywhere. If you want to get really granular, if you're product oriented, there's product hunt, uh, tech crunch. Uh, you know, there's, there's tons of podcasts. What's the podcast I'm following right now? Um, let me pull up this podcast. This is a good one. Anatomy of next. This is produced by founders fund. Um, it, it's, you know, it's project, it's sort of looking at forward looking trends. Um, but there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of things that you could do. I follow product hunt. I follow hacker news. Um, I, I, list, I, I followed Dan Primack on, uh, on Axios, um, and, uh, and just read the news, uh, you know, not too much of it, of course, cause you'll, you'll go crazy, but 
maybe the Wall Street Journal occasionally. Absolutely. No, I love Axios. I started uh, re reading that a while ago, I think um, beginning of summer. It's definitely been really helpful. Yeah, highly recommend it. Mm -hmm. um, what habits do you think are most useful to develop for a successful life or a successful career? Um, habits. Well, I think, um, I think that learning is, uh, you know, you, you know, my, you might think it's strange to call learning a habit, but the things you have to do to learn, um, successfully have to be done consistently over time for it to be successful. And so I think, you know, you should constantly be striving to learn, um, which includes reading, whether online or uh, through a book. Um, and you should constantly talk to people that are much smarter than you and surround yourself with people like that, right? And, and those, are, those are two sort of habits, uh, both reading and surrounding yourself with, with intelligent people that uh, I think people should, should certainly develop. Um, beyond that, I, I think it's important for people to have interests um, this is going probably outside of your habit question and probably into sort of a hobby question, but I think people should have, I think people should have, uh, hobbies. I think people should have unique interests and, um, and too often these days people have very, very professional and sterile resumes, which make them look impressive professionally, but not fun to work with. Um, which at the end of the day, especially if you're entering VC, let me tell you, you're, it's not an, it's not a bulge bracket bank bank. It's not, uh, it's not, um, Blackstone. It's not a big institutional group like that. You're going to walk in and you're going to be dealing with the same group of people, same like five or six people all the time. Um, and what makes you likable and unique, um, is important. My, I mean, you, I got this mountain in my background. I don't know if your viewers can see it. Um, or if it's just audio, but the, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big skier. Everyone at Adventures is a skier. And it's not like that's what got me hired, but we could jive on that. We could talk about that all the time. And in my interviews, I've probably spent like 30 minutes during my, my day there talking about skiing and nothing else. And, um, you know, do something that you love to do that is completely irrelevant to your professional goals. and you know, make it something you're passionate about so that, uh, so that you're interesting to talk to and that you're an interesting person and that you're happy. Absolutely. Completely agree with you there. I think it's very important to have those passions outside of your work. You know, they really just keep you going, keeps you, you know, keep you motivated on other aspects, you know, except for your work. You know, it's always good to put your head down and grind at work, but um, it's good to have a little relaxer that you can go and focus on something else and, you know, learn that, get better at that. Totally. Definitely. Mm -hmm. um, if you had to start your career today in a startup, which one would you choose and why? Realistically, um, I would, uh, I might go join um, the neighbor team. Um, neighbors, neighbor just raised a series A from Andreessen Horowitz recently, $10 million. They provide a storage marketplace, uh, a, a sort of consumer to consumer storage marketplace. Um, if you have a, 
if you have space in your yard or if you have a you know space in your garage or if you have a RV pad that you're not using, you can go on and rent that to somebody who has a boat or some some junk they want to store for forty dollars, fifty dollars, a hundred dollars, five hundred dollars a month. Um, I think it makes a ton of sense. Uh, I, I think the business model is 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 very very smart, and the team is uh, very capable. I think that that company is going to be successful, um, and I would want to I would want to be involved in that one. There's a there's a whole bunch, but I know I know some of those guys personally, uh, and it's a local company, so that that sort of makes me biased toward it. Absolutely, I love that. I actually haven't heard of that one before, um, so I'll definitely check that one out as well. That's amazing. Yeah, that's a well, wow. That's like a, another version of like uh, Airbnb for, you know, for uh, yeah. extra space that you have. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yep. It's gig economy, gig economy play on mm -hmm. uh, space. So we don't, you don't have to work. You don't have to do anything. So exactly. you can, you can make, you can make $10,000 a year if you have enough space, just letting out your backyard or whatever. You know, absolutely. Crazy. Yeah, it's great. Um, what's a recent deal that you have done that you are excited about and why are you excited about it? Oh, so personally haven't, made any investments since at eVentures. I joined in February and um, I haven't uh, executed on any deals of my own since being here. So I think the most relevant thing to talk about is probably probably um, my last investment at uh, probably my first, yeah, my last investment at, at University Growth Fund, which wasn't all that long ago. It was like a year ago. That uh, investment was in Capsule, um, which uh, is a prescription delivery company uh, tapping into the gig economy. They, they, you know, well, they, you know, they're solving the problem of um, the prescription pickup, which is such an annoying process for anybody doing it. If you have to go pick up a prescription, you go to a pharmacy and you wait in line. And uh, I don't know, this has happened to me multiple times, but you, sometimes you get to the end of the line and they don't even have it. Um, it's not ready. You got to go back another hour later. Uh, it's a very timely process, um, and for people in cities, uh, it's it's just not extremely realistic that they go walk down or take the, the subway down in the middle of their workday to these pharmacies and get their stuff. So, Capsule enables um, these essentially couriers to deliver your pharmaceuticals to you, your your prescriptions. Um, to you at work or at home in a safe, uh, verified, uh, but very convenient way that it, I believe that's covered by insurance. Uh, and if not, it's very cheap. So um, you know, I was a part of their Series C investment team um, and uh, am very, very bullish on, on Capsule. Definitely, I love that. Again, there's another one I haven't heard about and definitely have to check that out as well. Um, yeah, that's amazing. I can't believe, um, yeah, you, uh, so the, okay, got you. It's more on the growth side than the early stage side over there. That was, that, that was more on the growth side. Yeah. So I mean, it's, at any ventures, we do do series C's technically we would do that, but, um, my focus at eVentures is definitely series A's. So got I you. yeah, I wouldn't do anything that late anymore. Got you. Absolutely. Um, yeah, this was great. Thank you so much for coming on our podcast today. It was absolutely amazing having you on today. Absolutely, man. Thanks for the time. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to our show today. I hope you enjoyed it. You can subscribe to Santa Clara Ventures on Spotify and our anchor page. 
please feel free to message us some questions that you want answered in our following podcast episodes. Thanks again for tuning in, and I hope you join us again for our next episode.